Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, podcast devotees. Merry Christmas to you all, wherever you are in the world. We're stepping through piles of paper and busted boxes and all the bits of Christmas flotsam and jetsam that accumulate so rapidly on the living room floor today. Now, don't mind the mess here at Tech Talk. We have heaps more presents to open yet. And here, carrying a humongous red sack, splitting at the seams, sweating it out in full Santa suit in 41 degree heat. Oh, that was a mistake, Matt. It's Matthew Dickerson. Ho, 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 ho. Season's greetings to you, Matt. Oh, it does sound hot, doesn't it? <laughs> so, yes, you're right. This is being released on Christmas Day. That's how dedicated we are here. Christmas Day Bingo. being released so people can sit around and. I don't know, maybe take it easy on Christmas afternoon and say, yeah. let's just listen to a bit of... Put a podcast on the background, turn off the carols for just a little bit, give, give us 45 minutes carol free. And That's right. And look, at this time of the year, I thought the first thing I'd just talk about in, in general conversation was a nice little launch that I went to recently around the Rural Fire Service Aviation Centre of Excellence launch of the opening of this new building, this new facility. Mm. Obviously, this time of year in Australia, bushfires... I'm sure there are some going as we speak somewhere because they're probably happening somewhere in Australia all the time at this time of year. But one of the big things is the training. Now, with bushfire training, with the Rural Fire Service, there's a whole range of things they're training, the and mostly volunteers here, and, and well done to them. Thank you for your efforts. But training is obviously a really important part of it. So when you get on the fire ground, you actually know what you're doing. Now, part of that is in relation to helicopters and various aircraft that we have out on the fire ground. In the past, for example, you might need to winch someone down, pick up someone, a whole range of things where you might have a hovering helicopter. And they've told me, people in the office, in the past, to do that training, you're going out and you're doing most of that under a helicopter. Mm. First of all, that's expensive. You're spending, yeah. I would guess, at least $1,000 an hour to have the helicopter sitting in the air. The second thing is, because you're training, it's a risky situation. You're training with a real helicopter at real heights. Something can go wrong because you are training and accidents can happen, people can get injured. Yeah. So having some sort of simulated experience is really important. So I went and looked at this new Aviation Centre of Excellence, and I've played with VR headsets a bit because my son likes them in games, and they're <laughs> fantastic. But these particular helicopter shells they've got with VR headsets are absolutely fascinating. So one of the things you do for a start is you sit in the helicopter, put the VR headset on, and then you're the winch operator. But you're the winch operator sitting in a stationary item about half a metre from the ground. And what you do is simulate the winching up of someone, but you've got the winch in your hand, so you've got that rope still. It's not going down anywhere. It goes down into a loop. So you're still winching as you would. You're feeling that. You're controlling it with the same controls. You're looking with your VR headset, seeing exactly what someone would see out of a helicopter. So for a start... There you go. You've got all of this sitting in the helicopter without the wind, without the noise. You can have an instructor and you get familiar with the controls, you get familiar with how to do it all. Then you move over to another gantry, I'd call it, a huge big gantry that's about maybe three metres off the ground at its height. And so you can practice on that actually hooking in to a winch or picking up someone from a winch and it winches you up and the most you're going to do is you're going to fall from maybe two and a half metres. So that might sting a little bit or maybe sprain your ankle but you're not going to die from that you do all this training in this environment 
then the last part of your certification is to go out with a real helicopter. But you're familiar with it all. You know yeah, it all. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you haven't had to do those early steps, as you said, spending that enormous amount of money and uh, taking that enormous amount of setup as well. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So you've also got uh, another part of the simulator training where you're sitting in the helicopter, again, the pretend helicopter with your VR headset, looking at a fire ground. They can make fires appear anywhere. And then you've got this interaction with your, you've got your LAT, your, your water bomber, if you like, mm. that's flying down low to actually bomb and they don't bomb with water, they bomb with retardant now, mm. and they bomb in front of the fire because they aren't trying to put the fire out, no. they're trying to spread it, stop it from spreading any further. Yeah, just trying to starve it of fuel. That's right. So you've got your water bomber blow, you've got your bird dog, typically above, which is a, a light aircraft that's going around looking at the fire grounds, and somewhere in there you've got the helicopter as well. So you can interact with all these three aircraft again. Yeah, so many moving parts. In a simulated environment. So yeah. it's great to see... VR headsets, great to see that technology used for something that's much more useful than just playing games as such. So quite fascinating. For sure. Well, let's not delay another second here. We have some good, good goodies here to rip into, so let's get stuck in. Now, if you've indulged in a little bit too much this festive season and have no capacity to join the game of cricket out in the cul-de-sac, don't worry. Throw a good movie on the telly and watch the crowd dribble into the lounge room. And Matt... You've got a list of the top 10 AI flicks from the past 40 years to help you with the selection. Well, I thought this would be quite interesting because we have had some pretty good AI movies over the years. Oh, for sure. Some classics. Yeah, that's right. So I thought, you're sitting around on Christmas afternoon, it does get a bit sleepy. The Boxing Day test doesn't start till the next day. So mm-hmm. you can have a bit of a snooze, but you can have a bit of a snooze in front of the TV and just see whether or not AI is going to take over the world or whether or not it's going to be something that's going to be quite useful to us. So I've got a few here I'll run through. One I thought would be good would be a movie called Her, released in 2013. The voice for this particular AI is voiced by Scarlett Johansson. And essentially this is a relationship that builds up between AI and a human. And I find myself, when I'm asking ChatGPT a question, I find myself saying please and thank you. And I catch myself, <laughs> and I'm, why am I doing that? It's yeah. just a computer. But you start to feel this relationship yeah, building okay. up there. So that's exactly what happened in her. So that's not a bad one to look at. War Games, of course, an absolute classic release back in 1983. A very young Matthew Broderick is in this particular <laughs> one. And he... It's, they're fantastic to watch just to, to have a look at some of the graphics that they're working with and, <laughs> right. and the systems that they're working with. Yeah, right. so in, in War Games, he accidentally finds a backdoor into a military central computer and he thinks he's playing a game. <laughs> and, of course, he's about to start World War Three, so it's not a bad one either. Uh, iRobot, released in 2004 with Will Smith, and that's a police detective that doesn't yeah. really trust humanoid robots serving humanity. So he investigates a crime committed by a robot, which contradicts the three laws of robotics, of course. Yeah, so Asimov, yeah. That's right. Then he goes this whole investigation involving AI, the future of human-robot relations. So I think some of these movies are way ahead of their time, thinking about these things way back in 2004. Yeah. Another one's Chappie. Aussie uh, Hugh Jackman stars in this one, or is in this one. Uh, it's a future where the crime is portrayed by a mechanised police force, and then one police droid, Chappie, is stolen and giving new programming allowed to think for itself. Mm. So, uh, interesting little take on that. And then, of course, Short Circuit. Now, a bit of a cliche here. <laughs> the old Here's Johnny. Here's Johnny, yeah, number five, that's right. Yeah, yep. number five is alive. That's right, uh, and it's the... The cliched bolt of lightning in this one, of course, yeah, that hits right. Johnny and, of course, then that springs him to life. So he then starts to basically embark on a life where he's got some intelligence of his own. Now, I don't know that this is really specifically around the AI movies that I've talked about, but The Imitation Game, released in 2014, is oh, yeah? watching. 
I often hear about that's Alan, a really interesting one because it's yeah. yeah it's a biopic at least mm, yeah. exactly right and I you often hear about Alan Turing which this is about listed or talked about as the father of AI and, and he's not quite but I do remember playing or, or actually talking about the imitation game learning about that at uni and one of the things that was hilarious back then back in the 80s when I was at university was we talked about this imitation game and the idea was that you'd put you and a computer behind a door and I'd be on the other side of the door and I'd write a note and I'd slide under the door and I'd get an answer back and I didn't know whether the answer came from you or the computer. Yeah, okay. But if I couldn't tell, then that computer was defined as having intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, back when he came up with these concepts back in the 40s and 50s, people said, well, how ridiculous. You would never have a conversation just with text. You'd always have a conversation via some sort of verbal or audio means and you'd be mm. able to pick up that that was a computer. But now, of course, so much of our communication is via text with social media, with exactly, email. Yeah. Do we really know we're having a conversation with a computer or a human? <laughs> so, What I loved about um, uh, the imitation game uh, was seeing them build that, um, the, essentially the first computer. Before that, computers were usually women who worked with um, NASA and whatnot, and, yeah. and they were doing all the, ma- the calculations and whatnot, and he's developed this machine to do the same job. Yeah. And that's when we started calling machines computers. Yeah, that's right. So fascinating looking at all of that. And, of course, I've got in there probably more based on my love of Douglas Adams more than the is the Hitchhiker's Guide oh, to the Galaxy. Oh, of course, yes. And, of course, I love Marv and the Paranoid Android yeah. who talks about having the brain the size of a planet and then gives some – Simple tasks like open the door, and he does complain bitterly about that. I'm so overqualified, I've got a brain the size of a planet, and you want me to open the door. And you do wonder at some stage whether AI is going to say to us, what, you're asking me to give you a recipe, I can solve the world's problems, I can tell you the meaning of life, and you want a recipe. A couple of ones just to finish off, AI, artificial intelligence, which seems like an appropriate one for this segment, 2001 that was released. Ron's Gone Wrong, 2021, and Wall-E back in 2008. Uh, Wall-E, I'm, sure, I'm not sure how people like to pronounce it. I noticed you didn't one. bring up um, any of the Terminators there. That's good to know. Look, yeah. I did think about that. <laughs> I, I thought, <laughs> Leave was, it out. Was that really a glimpse right. of artificial intelligence? It was just the future coming back to talk to us. So, yeah, I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, look, there's definitely art of artificial intelligence there. But, um, yeah, look, um, yeah, we'll try to steer, steer away from the totally <laughs> dystopian future. That's I noticed right. you mentioned Wall-E, but we'll give you um, grace out of that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, so there's a few selections. Obviously, there's lots of other ones that mention AI, but I just thought they might be something to get you thinking about things on Christmas Day then sure. forget about them as you go on for the rest of your <laughs> celebration. Go out and play cricket. Now, this time last year, we brought you a rather surprising story that brought the nerdiest of the nerds right to the edge of their seats. Twelve months later, we have the results from this year's Microsoft Excel Spreadsheet World Championship, ladies and gentlemen. And the nerds can flip out once again. Matt, you've got, you have to burst this bubble of suspense. How has the big dance unfolded this year? Well, I'm going to keep the suspense going a bit longer. It's at the it was at the HyperX Arena, and of course, people associate that with games more mm-hmm. than Excel spreadsheets. And look, I do fancy myself a bit of an Excel expert. In fact, technically, 
I've got the qualification that says Microsoft Excel, Excel expert, but Good, I don't want to gloat on that excellent. for too long. <laughs> but <laughs> this would be absolutely fascinating to see what they do. Oh, so they haven't run it yet? No, they I've have. Jumped. Oh, they, they have? have okay. They have, yet. Yeah, but I don't, I'm just trying to drag out the oh, movie. Okay. Sure. All right, okay. <laughs> so they, they actually go through, and there's a whole range of problems. They do 30-minute sessions as part of the competition. So you, you're basically there. You're given a range of challenges and some errors in what's in the spreadsheet as well. So you've not only got to solve the data challenges, you've got to work out where the errors are. So I'm just picturing a whole lot of big screens and a whole lot of spectators <laughs> standing around watching <laughs> people plug away on these spreadsheets. It'd be fantastic. Fantastic. And the it? audience going, look, he forgot a bracket there. Oh, that's going to cost him, isn't T20 it? T20 cricket's got nothing on this. <laughs> that's right. I'm sure there's lots of music and lots of commentators <laughs> commentating on all oh, sorts of things. Oh, look at him. <laughs> and so you, that. you go through and your score is updated on a regular basis. And every five minutes, people are eliminated based on the lower scores. Oh, really? So it sounds like it's fairly so stressful. you've got to go fast. You've got to go fast. And you've got to solve problems quick. Exactly right. Now... We've got a champion in this country called Andrew the Annihilator, Nye. Of course. Of course, he's got a name like that. He's a two-time world champion before the championships this year. Now, there was a and bit of And he will an, annihilate your spreadsheets. He will, absolutely right. Now, there was a bit of an upset because it, he made it down to the semifinals, but he got eliminated in the semifinals. Oh. I know, tragic, but... There was a computer glitch, believe it or not, and oh. the scoring system didn't update correctly, so he was uneliminated. They realised that the scoring system didn't work properly. A bit of a computer Controversy glitch. Controversy at the World Championships. Absolutely right. You can imagine his opponent and that was quite happy to go through, and then it was recalled, and then Andrew went through, and after that little glitch, he went on to win for the third time. Wow. So Andrew Nye the is the world champion again. Now... After all of that, especially after the controversy, after the disappointment being eliminated and then the excitement of being brought back in, it's a bit like DRS, isn't it? You're walking <laughs> off, oh no, you didn't nick that ball. Then he only won $3,000. I thought they could have put a bit more on than three grand for well, first place. Maybe this is just the start. Maybe in another 10 years' time, we're looking at. Yeah, houses and cars. And maybe. Stuff. He won a championship belt as well, so oh, maybe you could well, take that to your that's resume. That's what you're really in it for, aren't you? <laughs> that's right. But but putting that in your resume it's wouldn't be too bad, would it? If you want your Excel problem solved, get a world champion Excel. you train for that? <laughs> I mean, outside of just knowing how Excel works. Get throwing problems at you, oh, I guess. I don't someone's know. Someone's got to prepare a spreadsheet with problems in it. I actually find yeah. myself sometimes using Excel. If I've just got to do some basic maths and you can just put up a calculator, I sometimes think, you know what, that'd be better in Excel because if I'm punching numbers in a calculator, yeah. then I could make a mistake and then oh, I've got to start again. Well, if I punch well, in Excel... You've got to go looking for where you've made the mistake on a little skinny little screen. Yeah, that's right. Whereas in Excel, you just punch them all in there and still add them up. Yeah. So I do go to Excel for lots of things like that. But anyway... Look, I like to nerd out um, on a spreadsheet myself, um, but there's a limit to how far I can nerd out. <laughs> True. Indeed. I'm not watching it on a big screen. <laughs> Fair enough, too. Right. Well, Andrew, <laughs> congratulations to Andrew, no, well and I, done. world champion again. Very good. All right, folks, when you're talking about big servers, then you're talking about big heat. Know what I'm saying? And you thought your laptop got hot on your lap? Well, stand back and get a load of what they're doing in Beijing, where one company has decided, like we all do sometimes, that the best way to cool off is with a dip in the ocean. Matt, it seems a bit drastic, but dropping your major hardware into the sea 
is one way around the problem, I guess. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Seems like a drastic solution. This is the first time this has happened in China. They've got their first underwater data. You say in China, or it's the first time it's happened in the world, but no, they've done it in China. No, it's first time in China. Okay, right. Microsoft did trial an underwater data centre previously. I'm sure we've even mentioned that, Project Natic that was called. So they did do some trials around that. But they stopped those trials in 2020. They didn't go ahead any further for right. whatever reason. But China said, hey, you know what? This isn't a bad idea. And I think there's one compelling reason, apart from the cooling, which we'll talk about a little bit, I think one of the things that you can gain out of this is regather some land. And China doesn't have a lot of yeah. spare land. Yeah. Rather than put those data centres on land, well, out in the ocean, you're not doing much on the ocean floor. You're not building an underwater city there. So dropping a 1,300-tonne watertight cabin wow. on the bottom of the ocean floor seems like a reasonable way to use up less space on land. So that probably is more important in China than many other places. The goal is to reduce power usage because obviously they've got some of the ocean's natural cooling properties being a bit colder. Yeah, that's right. You've got moving currents of water and um, that'd be fantastic. That's what yeah, really so what, what they're doing, and this particular one, they've got one as a trial at the moment, but the idea is they're going to deploy 100 of these underwater cabins to have lots of data centres there. Huge demand for data centres with AI, with cloud storage. So it becomes a bit strange. Will we start calling it sea storage instead of cloud storage? Because it's kind of, <laughs> it used to be up there somewhere, now it'll be down <laughs> yeah. there somewhere. Down so that might be a bit of a change. But they are trying to do it where they're using those passive seawater currents that you mentioned to keep it cool. You'll still have some traditional cooling systems inside this. And the energy efficiency is meant to be about 40 to 60 times more energy efficient. Now, there's still going to be times when they're going to have to go and physically touch these servers. Mm. So I don't know whether the most efficient way will be to send people down in scuba outfits and have some sort of entry from underneath, presumably, that yeah. doesn't allow water in, or whether they bring it up and say, right, do your work on it, you've got a day to work on it, and then drop it back down again. And I remember talking to someone about data centres in Sydney at one stage, and they are talking about ro locating those data centres further afield than Sydney, and they said their clients that have servers in these data centres like to be able to go and touch their servers. And I said, well, how often do they do that? And they said, never. But they like the idea they could, if they wanted yeah, that's to, right. just that's go and, baby. That's right. Go and, and open the door and walk in and touch my data server. So under the ocean, I'm not sure if people will be comfortable with that, saying, well, you can touch it. you just got to get your scuba licence and go down. very James Bond. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can see a movie being done with the data centres underwater. So at this stage, the depth of these is only about 35 metres. Now, 35 metres, you're still subject to some of the temperatures from above, some of the conditions from the outside world. So you're not going to get ridiculously cold there, but I think what you'll get is consistent temperature. So it might be 20 degrees Celsius, but always 20 degrees Celsius. Yeah, so at yeah. least you'll have that consistency. Yeah, yeah. There's another company called Subsea Cloud, and they're looking at deployments of 3,000 metres. Now, when you get down right. to those yeah, depths, you're talking about 2 to maybe 4 degrees Celsius. So you wrap that around a data centre, then you're starting to get a fair bit of passive cooling going on. So it's quite fascinating. It's a scuba dive right there. Yeah, that's right. If you want to go look at that one, <laughs> I'm not sure how they would go about it. But yeah, you just go, I just think the fan's just gone on my server. Yeah. Sort of go and replace that one fan, sure thing. That's a $10,000 job. So anyway, quite fascinating. We do need more data servers and we need to put them somewhere. So why not under the ocean? Goodness me. Keeping one step ahead is the key for the modern military. Well, we're about to see how in a world with fancy cameras everywhere that can see everything, modern camouflage requires a bit of AI to keep you hidden, Matt. 
well, this is really one of those cases, I think, of leapfrogging. We've got camouflage out there now. If you're a defence force from any nation, you've got some form of camouflage. Sure. Try no different. We've seen that for a long time. That's right. And so now, rather than relying on humans to try and look past that camouflage and pick up things that are assets or people on the ground, they've now got AI doing that. And that can be a bit more accurate. It can be looking for specific shapes, even certain colours if you know the sort of camouflage someone might be mm. using. So if you've got AI beating the human designers, then the idea is to get the AI designers to beat the AI camouflage so detectors. So it's become an AI arm wrestle. <laughs> That's right. Exactly right. AI trying to beat itself. <laughs> That's right. So... If I was AI, what would I be looking for? So let's design some AI camouflage to beat the AI tools that are trying to look for the AI camouflage. So sounds complicated. So the Australian Defence Force is doing this at the moment. They've got basically uh, the the whole use of AI thrown at this problem to design patterns, to design camouflages. And we're talking about whether it might be tanks, whether it might be any sort of equipment you've got, but plus people as well. You you don't want your people to be seen as well. And they're using some generative AI, similar to, say, DALI 3, in developing patterns, which is the first thing they're doing, and then designing how that all might look to be able to put over things on the ground. Of course, the next step will be that AI will go, I know what you're doing, AI, so I can detect what you're doing. Where does it all end? (laughs) So it's quite interesting, but certainly it is a bit of an arms race for detection of AI around this one in particular. Trying to keep one step ahead, as I said earlier. We're seeing it all over the country these days, the gaps in the workforce in almost all industries. We've been tripped over by the mass retirement of baby boomers for the last 15 years and we're scratching our heads for ways to fill the void in the workplace. In stark contrast, AI has been threatening to steal jobs from people, but the doom and gloom of AI oozing into the workforce is now being reframed as potentially a light at the end of the tunnel and it's starting to plug some critical holes, Matt. Back in 1865... Jevon's paradox was first phrased or first coined. Wow, this has come out of the air. Wow, this is out of the woodwork, literally, yeah? It is, absolutely right. And at the time, there was a book written by William Jevon, who was an economist, and he said that technology improvements in the use of coal has led to an increase in the consumption of coal because it becomes more cost-effective. And hence, Jevon's paradox was born, which basically said that as any technology progresses, the increase in efficiency, which which is occurring because of that, actually results in more resources being consumed because it becomes more efficient and makes it more effective for people. And you can look at something like cars, for example. Uh, Cars are much more fuel efficient now than they ever were in the past, but we're using more petrol because it's cheaper for people to travel around using cars. Well, back in the 80s and 90s, we were talking about um, moving into a paperless society. And how much paper do we produce now? Yeah, I reckon we're (laughs) using more paper than we ever did before. Yeah, so Jevon's paradox is quite an interesting one around technology. And I think it applies in this particular story. Now, I'll go into more detail about this story, but just stick that little Jevon's paradox to the back of your mind. So Relevance AI is a company co-founded by a couple of Aussies. It raised $15 million initially, which is not a lot in terms of a uh, some sort of IT startup. In Silicon Valley, they kind of throw $15 million on the table for lunch sometimes. So yeah. often they're hundreds of millions of dollars. But this launched back in 2020, and it's really gaining some traction now. They've had 6,000 companies they've helped. They've got 250,000 tasks. And what they're really focused on is whatever your job, whatever your thing that you're doing is, 
you might be able to just use some help in some of the repetitive parts of that. So don't cut your team. Don't say, right, everyone, we're going to sack you all and we're going to replace it with this. We're going to have some simple tasks that are going to be helped or aided by some AI. And the simplest example that I thought of, and I do a bit with radio stations, and some of the radio stations, when I'm sitting there waiting to do my segment, they'll have the weather. And you can see them getting online and they're looking up the weather for the day and then they're scribbling down the weather and then they do it half an hour later and they do it. And I thought that'd be a perfect example of a repetitive task that you could surely program some sort of AI tool to say, I need five minutes before the hour, the latest weather for these three locations. And there it is ready for you to read out as a radio announcer. So it's that sort of thing. That doesn't mean you replace the radio announcer. It just means the radio announcer, rather than focusing on that for two minutes each time he has to do it, he or she has to do it, then the radio announcer can say, let me come up with some other clever thing to do or some other competition or something else using human creativity. And so I think that's, and that's a really simplistic example I've come up with there, but they are helping a whole range of organisations. You've got companies like MYOB, Microsoft, Mervac, Unilever. These are companies they've already got as clients for some of these little things they do. Now, I don't know what they're doing for all those companies. They're not going to give away that sort of information. But one of the things that's really important is we've got wonderfully, fantastically, an ageing population because of our wonderful health facilities in this nation. But we're going to have less people in the workforce to do the work we need, including looking after our ageing population. So we need to be able to work out ways to make us more efficient. And if I look on the bright side of AI, that's what we're going to have, more efficiency. The dark side is, of course, we all have nothing to do because AI is doing everything for us. McKinsey, and I've got a fair bit of time for McKinsey. This is a Boston consulting company. They said that AI could add $6 trillion annually to the global economy. I don't know the background of all of that, but when McKinsey says something, usually there's a fair bit of good science behind that. So that's all fascinating. But Jevon's paradox does apply here because I think in this scenario, AI will create more job opportunities, they'll be different to what they are now. You may not have someone doing that repetitive, boring task, but that same person might be needed to do something a bit more creative, a bit more left field, a bit more something that humans can do that AI can't do. So that's the the good side of it all. That's my hopeful side of it all. It may not turn out quite that way. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens nevertheless. And I do want to apologise for my, mis- for my misuse of the word literally before as well. I'm just... <laughs> In that intro, good. I back up. I hate I, it figuratively. I, I, I I've say. been sitting there just <laughs> grating away in the back of my mind. That's all I could think of. I won't mention it to James. <laughs> ChatGPT has a new rival, and its name is Gemini. It's from Google, and Matt's going to tell us about the tricks it can do. Matt, there's a new kid on the block, and he's a big talker. He is indeed. And this is after Google's earlier... Remember Bard? We talked about Bard. It was going to be the chat GPT mm. killer, and it kind of just went away a bit. It didn't really gain For the much time meaning. being, but it's only been... We've only been talking about this for 12 months. Well, we have. You're exactly 12 right. 12 months is a long time in the world of AI, though. Oh, absolutely right. 12 months is a long time in the world of technology. But I think Bard... I think Google are at the point now where they're saying, Bard, you didn't go so well... That name's a bit tarnished, so we'll give up on you, and we've now got Gemini. So this is their new kid on the block to take on ChatGPT. Now, when you consider that ChatGPT has gained 100 million users over the last year, that's Mm. quite incredible. So obviously Google is saying, there's a bit in this, we better chase this up. Bar didn't go so well, and one of the criticisms it faced was for political bias, which you don't want when you're re- researching things. Yeah. When you're asking for some independent information, you don't really want some sort of political bias. So maybe they just thought the name Barb was too tarnished. When you look at 
the new one, the Gemini, they've got a, a score. There's the MMLU score, the Massive Multitask Language Understanding Score. <laughs> I kid you not. It is, it's That's got a real the word thing mass. now, it's folks. A real thing. Remember that. <laughs> and even when I saw that initially, I went, Massive multitask. Is, could you come up with something better than that? <laughs> like a, it just seems like some little kids come up with it, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> That's massive, that one. So Gemini, in this particular um, score, the MMLU score, scored 90, whereas ChatGPT has scored 86.4. Now, that's Google telling us that. And, of course, that's Google saying, well, obviously our product is better than ChatGPT. But because it's so new, the first one that comes out with this real change, ChatGPT, doesn't mean it's going to be the best one. It's changed the world. I I Mm. absolutely say that ChatGPT has changed the world forevermore. But whether it will be the product we'll be using next year or in five years' time or ten years' time, I can't say that with any certainty at all. Because they're so far ahead of everyone else they may suffer from that complacency, which many companies do, and then relax a bit. And next thing you know, Gemini comes along, Meta's out there working on products as well. So everyone wants a piece of this AI action. Uh, whether or not Gemini is the one, well, it's uh, interesting to see. But it's Whenever I hear a story about this, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, you but um, uh, I think about, you know, travelling back to the 80s and how VHS was not as good a system as Beta, mm. um, but VHS won outright just because people got on board with VHS. Well, and that's it's a it's a great study on the whole VHS versus this beta process, isn't it? And again, and it just comes down. the marketing that went behind it. That's right. Sometimes it comes down to who backs it, the marketing behind it, a whole range of things there. But one strength that Google has, of course, is that you've got YouTube, you've got Gmail, you've got Google Maps. People are using these things all the time. Yeah. If they've got a product, they can incorporate to those. I mean, there's that little search thing as well that people do with Google. Yeah. So if you incorporate some product into all of those, then suddenly people go, well, that's the standard now. So ChatGPT, yeah. people have got to choose to use it, whereas without knowing it, they might be using Gemini just in their day-to-day searches. So and Google are very familiar with how to dominate. Oh, oh are they? What? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a fascinating area. And what I love is all this competition hopefully drives better products, hopefully ethical products, hopefully products that help all of us, help mankind. Hopefully ethical products. For as long as technology has been evolving, and I'm talking about millennia there, folks, innovation has borrowed its finest inspiration from nature. And there's that's where this story begins. You probably haven't thought much about the gifts that a slimy eel has to offer, but they can swim a long way. And you only use a squinch of energy when you're an eel. Matt has more on this. Eels are known for swimming thousands of kilometres without feeding, which sounds quite fascinating. Amazing. It is. And so scientists. Without getting puffed, that's right. And scientists study nature as we often see them do, and they've just looked at this efficient way they move. So they've created a robot that mimics an eel. It's got eight motorised segments, a flexible tail, and they've found a whole range of different ways that they've tried to make this more efficient than an eel in terms of the way it moves its body through the water. And guess what? The most efficient way was basically the same like as an the eel. eel That's right. So they could actually make it go faster than an eel, but when they increased the speed of this, then they found that the efficiency, the amount of energy it used per kilometre, say, dropped down. So when they played around with a whole range of different variables, they tried a different bunch of experiments, they got to the point where they said, gee, the same speed and movement <laughs> of the eel is the way we should go forward. Who would have thought that evolution would have worked that out? <laughs> exactly right. Now, why do we care about this? Why do we want this? So a few things. One thing is that they're studying migration of eels and just working out how they 
actually go through that process. And as you say, some of that whole process in where we've gotten to now with the eels, that's fascinating. But then they start to look at, can we use this same technique to make devices that travel in the water and make them more efficient than other devices? So it might be, for example, you're testing things in the water, temperatures, various things that are in the water, and you want to put something underwater and have it travel along and pick up all these tests and go for as long as possible before you've got to retrieve it. Well, having a really efficient robot to do that mm. makes sense. Oh, rather than have a little device with a propeller on it, that's not that efficient. Have something that moves like an eel. So little things like I that. Want to make a submarine like that. Well, Imagine that's... being wobbled to death. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started thinking about that. I thought maybe you could have a boat rather than a propeller. Yeah. The driving force underneath it is something that moves like an eel. It's got like a flagella or something. Yeah, something like that. So, And the story didn't talk about that. It was really talking about using it for research and, and getting that com- uh, that best scenario, best fit scenario between energy conservation and the speed that it moves along. But who knows where this will develop because the propeller we've had for a fair while and yeah. it seems like it's pretty good. You stick yep. a motor and you spin something on the end of it and everything's okay. But and a lot of work's gone into refining that propeller to make yeah. it work really, really well. That's right. But sometimes you come along and you say, well, we're not going to use a propeller. We're going to use an eel <laughs> or an eel shape. And it probably wouldn't be great if you wanted a speedboat because mm. the speed seems like an issue here. But if you had a, an ocean liner that maybe mm. had something that we could drive it along, uh, I'm just imagining this massive eel that's, that's got this <laughs> under shape under the boat, but just fascinating. Oh, I'm thinking about life uh, um, boats and whatnot. You know, they get stranded out in the middle of the ocean. You yeah. just need something that has got low energy that can get you back Ticking to shore. away there and just going in the right direction yeah. until you get there. So all sorts of things. I think we'll see more of this. The fact that the scientists have built this robot now, they've put it underwater, they've actually had it operational, you don't do that and then say, well, that's it, we've finished that job, let's move on. You want to take advantage of all that research that's been done. Virtual reality made a flying leap into the entertainment industry as a bit of a novelty about seven or eight years ago, if I'm not mistaken, I may be corrected on that. And headsets are now finding their way into industry and research in a number of ways. VR has been something of a gift. Well, lab mice are getting into the action now with teeny tiny VR headsets. They're being used to help us understand the development of neural pathways. Matt, do mice love roller coasters and fast and furious car rides as much as we do? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> what, a, what a great life. You're experimental mice or mouse and you so say... put them on a roller coaster virtually. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, I didn't realise this was such a problem, but apparently when you've got... 2D screen projections, good old-fashioned screen in front of a mouse, then they get a bit distracted from things around the lab environment. So you're Mm. trying to build this environment that creates something that the mouse is focused on. And again, I didn't know it was such an issue, but now they are strapping on little tiny headsets, little tiny (laughs) VR headsets. They've got custom lenses in them. They've got tiny OLED displays, a 180-degree field of view for each eye, and then they can actually put things into there and then see what happens in the brain. Now, I imagine that you put a cat in there, for example, and see how the yeah, brain right. reacts. You have a, a predator Just come along. Just scare the hell out of these things and <laughs> laugh you right. now, they, the day. They still have them on a treadmill, apparently. So they've got them on the treadmill working away, and then you put these various images on them to see how their brain reacts, how their feet react. In other words, if they start running faster, if it's a cat there, they see they start running away from it, but it's in front of them. So they'd be kind of running towards it. If they mm. ran faster, they'd be trying to turn around maybe. Mm. It just sounds fascinating. We probably owe mice a lot more than we give them credit for. We see a mouse now 
and we scream, we jump up on a chair, we try and get rid of it, or we set mousetraps for it. But they've helped us a lot. And so yeah. our understanding of so many things in the human body is because we've done experiments on mice over the ages. So poor old mice, they get a hard time, I reckon. They do get a hard time, um, and when they're useful, they're really good. Yeah. <laughs> but when they're just eating through your cereal boxes and whatnot in your cupboard, so you, you're not giving them the sympathy that I'm trying to give them here. <laughs> <laughs> but this does sound fascinating, doesn't it? And again, I just I love the idea of these discussions where people come up with this. Sitting around a project planning meeting or a boardroom. Now, I've got this idea that we should put VR headsets on mice. And everyone says, so, have you been drinking to this morning? What, what, what are you thinking about here? Because it just yeah, sounds like right. a crazy <laughs> idea. But then obviously someone's going, well, Maybe we could do that, and then how do we develop that? <laughs> how do we test that the actual image is good enough, trying to compare it to a mouse or uh, the vision from a mouse compared to what you might put on its eyes? It, it sounds very complicated to me to try and create this whole this neural pathway. Thinking about these mice walking on balance beams and things like that. What other things do we do with VR headsets? Anyway, it's quite quite fascinating. I'm sure if someone went and searched for some videos on this, they'd see these mice with these little VR headsets on there and being, I don't know, reacting Playing to Playing World of Warcraft things. or whatever. <laughs> Now, here's something about cryptocurrencies that I bet you didn't know. Trading Bitcoin is a really thirsty job. Not for the traders, but the simple act of trading cryptocurrency requires an enormous amount of fresh water to be uh, consumed. Now, Matt, can you explain this? <laughs> it does sound a bit complicated. Now, we've used the universal measuring tool for water, which is swimming pools. With the swim- yeah, swimming yeah, that's pool. right. Everyone, everyone understands that one. So a single Bitcoin transaction consumes enough water to fill a swimming pool. If you want to be right. more technical about it, about 16,000 litres of clean water it uses. Wow. And the first thing you say is, well, what are you talking about? If you lost the block completely, how is it using water? We associate Bitcoin transactions with high energy usage, and that's a major problem around the world. People are spending more on their power bill than the actual Bitcoin they might be generating if they're trying to generate Bitcoin, for example. Mm. So that's been a big issue we've talked about before. But when you look at electricity generation, then you start to look at coal, gas-fired power plants, hydroelectric power. They're all using water. So it's not just the energy usage that people have been focused on because you start to realise how much energy is being generated when you start talking about this much water being used. But you talk about all that water and then you talk about water for data centres, not the underwater ones, the ones that are on the land. There's often water cooling being used in data centres. So someone said, I'm going to focus all of that. So there's a gentleman from the... VU Amsterdam, who said, I'm going to calculate all the water usage for every Bitcoin transaction. And again, it's mostly based around that power, but you start to break that down. Then you start to say, globally, Bitcoin transactions consumed 1.6 trillion litres of water in, in in a year. So that's a huge amount. And again, we talk about that. That will keep increasing as Bitcoin keeps going. Are we at the stage now where we're going to give up on Bitcoin? You and I have talked about it a bit, <laughs> and it doesn't seem well, like it's going that well. Things have quiet in the news about cryptocurrency recently, and it only took a couple of big collapses in <laughs> with a couple of That's right. versions of uh, cryptocurrency, um, and people are starting, well, and we're getting a little bit spooked. That's right, and we've talked about it before. 
that the we don't want to give investment advice on this podcast, but from my perspective, the amount of Bitcoin that I've ever bought is zero because I don't have enough confidence. And its greatest strength is its greatest weakness. The fact that you've got no big, scary central government controlling it all mm. sounds like, yes, we can beat the government on this, but that's also its greatest weakness because yeah. there's no big, scary government controlling it all. So it does seem like, you're right, I, I haven't heard as much about Bitcoin or any cryptocurrencies in the news lately. I've, so, only, I've only seen documentaries and things about things that have gone wrong. <laughs> That's right. You haven't seen the documentary about, wow, this has really changed the world. And when you think about this, when you think about how big a problem global water crises will be in the future, yeah. you start to think, well, do we really want to support a cryptocurrency that's using lots of energy, obviously, using mm. lots of water? What's the future for this? It doesn't sound that bright. So if you weren't sure about it, if you're thinking about maybe not going down that path, then this might be another nail in the coffin. And that's all we have for you today, folks. A nice little something extra to what has hopefully been a bountiful Christmas season for you all. But we've left you with a little bit room left for Christmas pudding. Well done, Matt. Merry Christmas. And thank you for the gift of another cracking tech talk. Well, thank you. And Merry Christmas to all our listeners. Thank you for joining in and listening to us all throughout the year. And we get great feedback from our listeners. Lots of listeners out there. So it's actually quite nice. Another year ticked off. Season three ticked off as such. And uh, exciting to see what happens next year. In fact, we will do a best of after this particular one and just do a best of the year but it's always fascinating going back and looking at that first one first few months of the year to yeah. see what we're talking about and then see what's happened over that year see it's amazing how, it how much changes yeah so yeah. enjoy your christmas afternoon listening to this maybe watching some of those movies that we talked about and look forward to our next best of and then next year crack it open and it'll still be forging ahead with a whole range of new things <laughs> yes thank you for allowing us into your headspace this year it's been another fantastic year chatting away about the latest and greatest gadgetry and finding ways to navigate our way safely into the future. I'm James Eddy, wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I've got to clear off now before I get roped into all the cleaning up. Be sure not to lose our number and pick us up in 2024, just where we left off in 2023. We'd be delighted to have you come along for the ride. Until then, from Matt and I, take care and enjoy your time off.